Amen. Thank you, Brother Dan. We are continuing our study. We began a couple of weeks ago on the person of Christ. And the more I study, the more I realize how little I really know and understand about the Godhead. I do know this. <clears throat> we serve a tremendous Savior. He's beyond understanding completely, beyond comprehension. And yet He still loves us and He died for our sins. But in Jesus Christ, we have one person with two natures. Now that being said, what are those two natures? One person, two natures. What are the two natures? I want more detail. You're close. In Christ, he has two natures. One is what? Human, right? And one is what? Godly or divine. A human nature, a godly nature. Now, again, we can be God-like and godly in our behavior, but Christ is divine. A human nature and a divine nature in one person. <laughs> What's interesting, and this is kind of a, a rhetorical question, I suppose, is there a difference between the two natures? Do what now? Yes, there are two differences. Now remember, and we ask it all the time, was Jesus God or man? Oh, okay, right, that's right, amen. He is both. And again, two natures in one person, but they're not separable. And what's interesting, these two natures keep their peculiar properties in the person of one Savior. Now, I've been through this and through this and through this, and I'm still clunking around in my mind, okay? But it's a biblical truth. And we'll never fully understand this great mystery. But it's the only way we can verify or account for the biblical teaching that Jesus is truly God and truly man. Does that mean that one minute he's God and the next minute he's man? The next, what does that mean? Same time, right? Yeah. Now, we don't, we don't understand that, but it's exactly what the Bible teaches. I was in conversation uh, Sunday evening with one of our former pastors, and uh, I don't remember how, why this came up. Uh, because he had no idea what we're teaching on here on Wednesday night. And uh, he was talking to somebody, and uh, he said, I asked him, who was the most narrow-minded person in the Bible? Well, right away, I didn't tell him this, uh, Jesus Christ is. So he said the person he was talking to mentioned John the Baptist, and finally this, my former pastor said, no, it's Jesus Christ. And he is. He's the most narrow-minded person in the Scriptures. Because what did he say about himself? Yeah. He's, which way? Ah, thank you, Paul. He's the only way. I want to ask you a question. Can you get any more narrow than that? He doesn't leave room for anything else. And by the way, why did he say that? It's the truth, amen. It is the truth. And it is. Our Savior was. Now, again, remember this. We shouldn't grumble about why not show us many ways, because there are not many ways. Thank God he showed us the way. I am the way, the truth, and the light. And no man can come to the Father except through Him. Now again, we've looked at the Godhead of Christ several weeks ago on our series. We spent now, this is about a third week on this person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, a couple of things just to remind ourselves of. First of all, uh, He was pre-existent. Now again, make sure we're, we're on the same uh, table or same book or same page, whatever you want to say. We talk about the Godhead. What? Who makes up the Godhead? 
God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, normally in, in, in biblical study, we refer to God as the first person of the, of the Godhead, Christ as the second person, and the Holy Spirit as the third person. Which one is greater? They're all co-equal, but yet that's how we refer to them. But I want you to realize, uh, because God is eternal, Christ has to be what? Eternal. And we know he is pre-existent. He's always existed. And we're not going to take verses tonight. We did that last week. But we see it from his Godhead. Uh, we also talked about some Christophanies, and that was Old Testament appearances of Christ uh, before he was incarnated. Uh, but, you know, again, we know that he was active even in the Old Testament. And by the way, the Apostle Paul, uh, when he wrote to the church at Corinth, he reminded that that rock in the desert was who? It was Christ, okay? A theophany of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see God incarnate, the man Christ Jesus. Now, remember, the Bible, well, ask, let me ask this question. Who has ever seen the Father? Only the Son. No man has. So, God is incarnate. He is visible, was visible in the man, Christ Jesus. Last time we, we looked conversive. We're not going to read them again tonight. But back, way back in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, God gave a promise of a Redeemer. Folks, God has always had man on his heart, okay? But then in chapter 12 of Genesis, he gives that promise again to Abraham, how that through Abraham's seed, singular, Christ, all nations would be blessed. And we have to remember that the, the only purpose for his coming was the redemption of his people. Now, keep in mind, his people are made up of who? Amen. Those who believe and trust Him, right? Anyone who does, we are, we are accepted. We have been redeemed by Him. His redemption was paid for everyone, but it only worked for those who have received Christ as their Savior. Kind of interesting, we think about the, uh, the doctrine or the teaching of the Incarnation. Uh, we cannot overemphasize how important that is. In fact, the New Testament protects that teaching uh, in 1 John chapter 4. We won't read it again tonight. Uh, we see it there several times. But it was protected by some of the strongest warnings found in the New Testament. And the Bible simply says, if you don't believe that Jesus came or God came in the flesh, you're not saved. You are simply not born again. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ is God of the flesh, you cannot be saved. Very important, okay? Very, very, very important. Now, by the way, it's interesting. Uh, I was talking to Diane Cole this uh, this past Monday evening, and uh, I was there to visit her at the hospital, and she was sound asleep, and I didn't want to wake her, so I left her a note uh, that I'd been there, and she was resting so well. And anyway, I guess uh, uh, someone who worked at the hospital uh, came in, and uh, I, I don't know, so I'm supposing they were in the custodial department there, and, and Diane said, just go ahead and throw that piece of paper away. And the fellow happened to see that, that her pastor had signed it. He said, well, this is from your pastor. And uh, anyway, uh, she said, I know, I've already read it, you know, blah, 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 and I, she was, you know, that, that I'd been there. And he said, well, I'm a pastor too. And so she said, kind of neat, because God used that note to introduce me to another Christian, so she said, he asked me, could I, could he pray for me? And of course she said, sure, I want all the prayers I can get. So I had to laugh because she said, I listened very carefully now, Pastor. I listened really carefully to what he said, especially at the end of his prayer. And he said, he, she said that this pastor said, I pray all this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, my Lord. She said, I knew then he was a Christian. But a lot of times, folks, people mention God all you want. You know, but if you pray in the name of Christ, that sets you apart because you have to believe that God, Christ is God in the flesh. So we're talking about this person of Christ. It certainly involves the baby that was born in a Bethlehem manger. So who was that person? Now remember, he's the God-man. God incarnate, the man Christ Jesus. 
But first of all, the one born of the manger was the mighty God. Isaiah 9, 6. Somebody read that, please. Okay, now, of course, Isaiah is prophesying about the one who was born in Bethlehem some 700 years later. And all this litany of things here. But Isaiah says, God says through Isaiah, he will be the mighty God, human and divine. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23 is also Emmanuel. Okay, thank you, Philip. We have his name there. And then we're told what it means. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. So how how was God with us? Through who? Amen. Through the person of Jesus Christ. His personhood. The man, Christ, Jesus. So he's the mighty God. He's Emmanuel. But according to Titus chapter 2, verse 13, he's also our great God and our Savior. Somebody want to read verse 13, Titus 2. So remember, he is the true man. He had a spirit, he had a soul, he had a body. And I think we'll agree that a spirit, soul, and body are essential if you're going to have human nature. And Christ had that. Because nobody, nobody can be a human, a man, a woman, either one, without all three. Go to Luke chapter 1, look at verse 35. Luke one thirty five. Amen. Now, don't forget, we took a look at this last week. Whenever the angel came and announced to Mary, and Mary was wondering how could it happen? I've never been with a man. Intimately, so how can it happen? Of course, uh, the angel tells her exactly how it is going to take place. Now, here's what we need to realize. How long did Jesus, as God, exist? Forever. But he did not always exist as a man. Isn't that true? God became what? Flesh, a man. Now, hold on. Hold on. He's the... We talk about his humanity and the angel of that holy thing. Did God come down and, for lack of a better way to bring this out with my limited, limited mind, did he come down and inhabit a person already here? So we have to understand something here. This holy thing was not a distinct person that he inhabited. It's not separate from his Godhead. Because this person did not have an existence before, through the birth, through Mary's womb, there was unity with his deity. The God Man. Ephesians 4, look at verse 5. Now, we're, of course, we're reading from Paul's writing. And you have any idea? I know we're kind of pulling kind of out of context there. It might be a little hard to see what Paul's trying to say. But who is the one Lord he's referring to? Jesus Christ. Amen. So, he is the God-man. But Paul says he's still yet one Lord. And because of that, he was born. He lived in this world. He died. He rose again. And he ascended to heaven. How long will he be there? Forever. Okay. Now think about this. 
from what we've read so far, and we're, we're just barely scratching the surface here, wouldn't you agree he is entirely unique? No one else compares to him. And please understand, Jesus Christ, the person of Christ, the God-man, is the object of wonder to every other holy being. All the angels, all the cherub. He is totally unique. I think to for me to say tonight that the person of Christ is a, it's a very complex one, that would be an understatement because it is. How do you explain it? Now remember, we're talking about two separate natures. The divinity of the deity and the humanity. And those two separate natures are joined together in one incomparable person. Trying to get an example, and it's hard to do this. Uh, you ever make jello? Anybody? Okay, now, uh, I made it a few times. Not my favorite thing. Now, give me chocolate pudding any day, okay? Uh, but with jello, you take a powder, right? And water. Is that correct? So you have two distinct things. Wouldn't you agree? But you mix them together, what happens to them? Huh? They gel. The nature of God, I'm sorry, Christ's humanity and his divinity never gelled. They still remain distinct. You mix that powder in the water, and they kind of weld themselves together. Gel would be a better word, I guess. But the nature, the human nature of Christ and the divinity do not weld themselves together because they remain distinct and they remain different. Remember, he's the God-man. Distinct. Now, have I made that clear? Is it, I mean, I, I don't mean because this this has been so difficult for me. I hope I don't muddy the water here. Now, let me let me make sure we understand something. Uh, I have read stories, or maybe saw, seen some. I don't know, some kind of a film of some kind. Now, it wasn't filmed on location, okay, but pictures of Jesus when he was a little boy and doing miracles. I doubt that happened, okay? Because the only time we read of him as a boy, of any detail, as Luke tells us, uh, he was 12 years old, remember that? And they'd forgotten him. They left him there in Jerusalem. Had to go back and get him. And, but Luke reminds us at the end of that chapter, he continued to grow in what? Wisdom and stature. So my question would be, what was growing? His human side or his God side? His human side. Not his God side, but his human side. Do what? It was complete. Now, Phyllis, you, you said it really well there. And I, I tell you, folks, we struggle with that. that. We don't understand how it can be. So don't don't think for a moment they, they fused themselves together. They didn't. He had the human side and he had the God side. The God side was complete. So again, when Christ was born in Bethlehem, did he become God? 
No, he already was, okay? It was already complete. Now, here's a shocker, okay? The human nature of Christ was not divine. Thank you. In spite of what Kenneth Copeland might tell you, we're not little gods, okay? It's not biblical. We are simply not little gods. The human side cannot be divine. Say it again. Yes. And that's the puzzle right there, amen? (laughs) And we're going to kind of touch up a little bit. Yes, you know. Now remember, let's be honest, we can't wrap our head around that. But still... That human nature can never be divine. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, I think, Martin, it's important to, for us to realize that that's a very precious gift we've been given to be created in his image. <laughs> now remember, the human nature does not possess... Any of the attributes of God. He was human on one part, divine on the other. So it's interesting when we consider the humanity of Christ. And hear me well. When you consider it in its fullness and separately consider it, his humanity is not omnipotent. Not omnipotent, his humanity and omniscient, nor is it omnipresent. Now think about that. His humanity was not any of those things because it was not divine. But on the same token, his deity is not a creature. And none of the things that pertain to humanity pertain to his deity. Totally separate, totally distinct. So when God became flesh, did it lessen his divine being? No, not at all. Not in the least way. It simply did not. So what happened was we have a divine person, God, who joined himself to a holy humanity. And because of the humanity, the flesh, his essential glory was partly veiled, hidden. But it never ceased to be. And its divine attributes never ceased to function. Now, an example, we're not going to read this tonight, but you've read of the event on the Mount of Transfiguration. And for lack of a better way to describe it, I want to say that Jesus pulled back the curtain of his humanity and they saw a complete revelation of his divinity. And that's why they fell at his feet as dead. 1 Timothy chapter 2, look at verse Thank you, Phyllis. Paul is very clear here. <clears throat> says there's one God, okay, and there's one mediator between God and man. And then Paul said, in case you're wondering who that is, it's the man Christ Jesus. So please understand, God chose the Lord Jesus to be the mediator between God and, and you, you and I. And so, again, the Son of God the one often referred to as the second person of the Trinity, is the eternal God, and he is equal with the Father. So that being said, he was willing, and he did it willingly, if you will, 
He took on himself the nature of man. And Phyllis, you kind of touched on a moment ago, except without what? Without sin. And so we have two complete, perfect, and distinct natures. Godhead and manhood. And they were inseparably joined in the person of Jesus Christ without being fused together. And so that's how Jesus is truly God and truly man. Now, by the way, it doesn't matter whether we can explain that or not. That's what the Bible teaches. He is truly God and truly man. So as the God-man... The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the one mediator. In the book of Job, trying to remember the chapter, I think chapter 9, could be wrong about that. But Job cried out, he said, oh, that there were a daysman between God and man. And a daysman would be an arbitrator, an umpire. And Job said, oh, I wish that there were somebody who could lay their hand on the shoulder of God and the shoulder of man and bring us together. But Job didn't know God had a plan for one, a mediator. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as the God-man, Christ is in fact the one mediator. Now remember, how many gods are there? Just one. How many mediators are there? Just one. And again, Christianity is pretty narrow, right? There's not two or three. No option here. Just one. And so, because Christ was the God-man, because he was the one mediator, he was the only one qualified to stand between God and men and bring about reconciliation. Thank God for Jesus. He brought us back Together again. And I want to say tonight, what all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't do, the king did. Amen. Jesus Christ, he brought us back together again. Now again, two natures united in one person of Christ. But each nature kept separate properties, just as our soul and body does. So we talk about this divine nature. And I want to tell you folks, the divine nature of Christ has nothing in common with us. But guess what part of his death his does? His humanity. His divine nature has nothing in common with us. What do I mean? Well, we are finite. What about God? He's not. Everything we gain in knowledge, we derive it from something or someone. What does Christ's divinity get their knowledge from? Self-existence. We're dependent. Christ, his divinity, was not. So his divine side has nothing in common with us. But thank God his human side does. Now, again, that reminds me of why God had to become flesh. Because his divine side shared nothing in common with us. So became flesh so he could experience life the way we experience life. So in his human nature, and remember two natures, divine and human, Christ was made in all things like we are, of course, without sin. Without sin. So let me ask you again. When did Christ's divine nature begin? Always was, right, Dan? Which means what? 
Yeah, he's God. But when did his human nature begin? When he was born. 2,000 years ago. So his human nature did not exist from all eternity. And we mentioned a moment ago, he increased in knowledge as well as other endowments from a human nature standpoint. And here's what's interesting. In the one nature, his divine nature, what did he know? Everything. But in his human nature, he began to grow. And that's what the Bible says. Yes. He began to grow. And so the human nature and the divine nature. So it's interesting when in the one nature, in his divine nature, he had an infinite sovereign will. And we'll be teaching from Mark Gospel chapter 14 uh, Sunday morning. And you remember when he prayed in the garden, what did he ask for? Remove that cup, but yet what? Not my will, but thine. So what do we see in that? I see in him, in this divine nature, he had an infant and sovereign will, but he also had a created will in the human side. And that's why he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. But here's what's interesting. And this is so amazing. He had a divine will and a creature will. But did he allow his creature will to oppose the divine will? No. No. And so we cannot miss how important it is for the two natures in the one person of our Savior. It is so very very important. Now, first of all, would you agree to be an effective mediator? You should both be God and man. Isn't that fair? And to be an effective mediator, you certainly had to be able to partake of the nature of both parties, divinity and humanity if you're going to be the middle person between them. And that was, is what qualifies you to be the one Job prayed for, filling up the distance and bring them near to one another, divine and human. And so it was necessary for these two natures to be in the person of Christ because that was the only way. The only way to communicate God's benefits to us and the only way he could release our debts. The wages of sin is what? Death. What did Jesus do? He died for our sin. He died for our sin. We speak often about being redeemed. Uh, what is the word to redeem? What does it mean, redeem something? Do you want now? Pay the price, okay. And once you redeem it, what, what, whose property does that become? Amen. It becomes yours. Yeah. You see where we're going with this? What has Jesus done for us? He's redeemed us. He paid that price. Not, not the blood of goats and, and bulls and lambs, but his precious blood. And if any creature is redeemed, that creature becomes the property of the one who redeemed them. But it's also interesting. Christ has redeemed us, and yet at the same time we're now his servant. 
We belong to Him. 1 John chapter 5, look at verse 20. Thank you, Dan. I get so tired of people who tell me, and I've ever heard Christians say foolish things, well, there's so much we simply can't know. I beg to differ with you. There are those who say, well, we can't know if people are going to go to heaven. And I realize that's in the hands of God, but I will tell you this. Any person who has trusted Christ as their Savior are going to go to heaven. And I like how John starts out verse 20. He says, and we know. John says, we know the Son of God has come. Now, by the way, you think you, anybody could ever talk John out of that? Huh? No, there's no way. John says, we know he has come. But not only has he come, he's given us an understanding of how we might know that one true God. (laughs) And John says, we are in him that is true, even the Son. And he says, his Son, Jesus Christ, is the true God. And he adds, that is eternal life. And here's what he'd understand. None but God can give eternal life. No one but Him. And that's why the two are joined together. The true God and eternal life. But also, at the same time, to be an effective mediator, He had to be a man. He had to enter our law place, if you will, and be subject to the law, keep it, and merit by keeping it. I was listening to some clips today, and actually it was a good Bible teacher playing a few short clips of some of our modern day heretics. And one preacher said, God, Jesus Christ, broke the law. How many of us are lying from the devil? If you break the law, you're what? Say it again. You're a sinner. Was he human? Yes. Did he sin? No. And so, <clears throat> so he had to be human. Galatians 4, verse 4. Thank you, Phyllis. When the fullness of time was come. How many know that God does things at the right time? <laughs> and Paul says, and, and first of all, that he was made of a woman. He had to be made of a woman before he could be made under the law. But also... He had to endure the curse of the law. He had to suffer its penalty. And it's interesting. And here's what blows my mind. And let me ask you again. Did he sin? No. But in order to pay our sin debt, he was made sin. And the wages of sin is death. (laughs) Yes, it was our sin. It was our sin. 
I'm not going to tell you. I would have thought by now, after this many years of studying scripture, I, I had it all nailed down and ironed out. We can't. We, we just can't. But here's something that was brought to my attention when I began to study this particular topic. He became man so he could die. You got that? Yeah, exactly. He became a man so he could die. Now, I realize Jesus said, no man takes my life except I'll lay it down. We understand that. But for years, I had in my mind, I thought, well, again, my feeble, finite, mixed up mind assumed that he would never die physically. That's not true. God can never die. But he became a man that he might die or sin. So the divine nature is not capable of dying. So he took on the human nature, a nature that is capable of mortality. Hebrews 2, look at verse 14. Thank you, Dan. <clears throat> we'll be covering in Mark's Gospel this, this coming Sunday his arrest and then when he goes before the Sanhedrin uh, when they begin to pluck his beard and, and slap him in the face um, because he was God none of those things hurt him. It didn't hurt when they slapped him. It didn't hurt when they plucked his beard. It didn't hurt when they put the crown of thorns on his head. It didn't hurt when they beat him uh, with, those, with that whip. That didn't hurt at all. What's wrong with everything I just said? Huh? It's not true. Amen. I'm glad you caught that. He Absolutely. It did hurt. Why did it hurt? Because he was man. Daniel just read in Hebrews, he partook of flesh and blood. And so when that whip lacerated his back, what happened? What came out? Blood. When they plucked his beard, it hurt. When they put that crown of thorns on his head, it hurt and he bled. And when I think about the person of the God-man, folks, he is absolutely unique. He has no precedence. He had to. It would be just like us. And fact is, his existence has nothing or no one to compare it to. And you can't explain him by putting him in a certain class. And there's not an illustration good enough For an example. And yes, the Bible is clear that he has the elements of a person, of human nature and godly nature. But the Bible never once gives us a formula that we can come up with to come out with an exhaustive definition of who that person is and how they depend on their mutual relationships. The God man. Without a doubt, this is a great mystery. How can the person of Christ, how is it possible that that same person should be both infinite and finite, both omnipotent and helpless? And I got to tell you, folks. Those things transcend our thoughts. 
The only way it can happen is through God. How can two complete natures come together in one person? How can two consciousnesses, how can two understanding, two memories, two wills constitute one person? It babbles our finite minds. That's the only answer we have. With God, all things are possible. Now, that being said, Phyllis, I'm going to ask everybody tonight. What if we don't understand what God says? What do you say, Dan? Let him We're the believer, right? Yeah. Yeah, amen. It, we're to believe it. We're simply to believe it. And here's what's interesting. Nobody can explain it. And the Bible never asks us to. Yeah, it never asks us to. Both natures <laughs> act in tandem with each other. The God-man. One person, divine and human, the same person who gave his life for the sheep. He also possessed the glory with the Father, according to John chapter 17, before the world was, and yet he gave his life for the sheep. And what's interesting It wasn't by adding man into Godhead that his personality was formed because the Trinity is eternal, but it cannot change. God didn't substitute a new person for the second member of the Trinity. Didn't add a fourth. They were together in Christ Jesus. All I can tell you is this. The person is eternal. The person of Christ is eternal and divine. His humanity was introduced into it. The center of his personality is always in the eternal, personal word. The very Son of God. I want to read a passage from Exodus to help us try to illustrate this, I guess. We see a typer. Let's read chapter 3, Exodus 2, uh, chapter 3, verses 2 through 6. Thank you, Phyllis. Real quick. We have a flame of fire. It was in the midst of the bush. And without a doubt, an emblem of God's presence, an emblem of God indwelling the man Christ Jesus. Uh, he's called the angel of the Lord. Again, a Christophany of Christ. He's a messenger of the covenant. And he also says, I'm the God of Abraham. So the fire, an emblem of whom he is, a consuming fire, placed himself in a bush, a thing of the earth, where it burned. But what happened to the bush? What happened? Now, I realize, still a, a shadow, but certainly remarkable foreshadowing of the fullness of the Godhead that dwells in 
Christ Jesus. Thank God for the person of Christ. Let's stop here tonight and take a few moments for prayer. Um,